This is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is an award-winning author, travel writer and academic. His most recent book, The Granite Kingdom, is a probing and lyrical account of an east-west walk across one of Britain's regions, Cornwall. Now, Cornwall is a region that we all think we know or that we have certain ideas about, but Tim Hannigan can really make that clear for us. Tim, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I know very little about Cornwall, much more now from having read your book, but but many of us think of it as this mystical land, the place of legend, really. What are the beginnings of Cornwall? What do we know? Well, I, I need to make it clear right from the beginning that I'm from Cornwall. I'm from as far west as you can go, pretty much. I was born in Penzance, and that's the place I still sort of think of as home. So everything that you know and everything that we think about Cornwall, I've always been kind of on the receiving end of that. There's a, a sense... Uh, growing up there, of this great mass of people to the east looking down towards you. So what do we know about Cornwall? It's the end of the line. It's as far as you can go in mainland Britain. And that's what kind of gives it this this peculiar quality. It is still attached, just about, but it's very nearly an island. It's 70 or 80 miles from the border to the end. But the border itself is mainly formed of water, the River Tamar. So it has this, not just peninsula, but very nearly insular quality. And I think that's what's allowed it to kind of gather all these projections and myths and, and mysteries. Mm. Um, it has a status as a as a Celtic land. It's one of the so-called Celtic nations. And that's, well, I mean, that's a starting point for a sense of mystery and otherness. Absolutely. Let's talk about your beginnings in Cornwall. As you say, you were born there, grew up there, I'm presuming doing all the sort of seafaring things, surfing and sailing and things. Yeah, yeah I was a very keen surfer and kayaker from a very young age. And the sea was just all around us, so it was just involved with everything. And we were always fishing as well from a very young age. But surfing, surfing and kayaking were my kind of two main things. The sea was there kind of more deeply and more meaningfully in my family background. My dad had been a fisherman from the late 1960s until the early 1980s. He came ashore when uh, when I was a child, but um, fishing was very much there in the background throughout my childhood. We sort of grew up surrounded by the detritus of his fishing career. The the, the garden was full of bits of old rope and fish boxes, and we, we grew up on stories of the sea as well. So it wasn't just the the sea as a playground, it was the sea as a, as a working place, which mm. is a very different thing. Now, then you became a chef. Why was that? Because I'm from Cornwall, the, the, the tourist industry, the catering industry is what you tend to fall into unless you go away immediately. And I didn't, didn't particularly have any inclination to go to university at the end of school. Didn't really have the grades either. I, I, I went later, I studied journalism, but not until my, um, my mid-twenties. And yeah, the jobs that are there are mostly agricultural work, a little bit of construction work or catering industry work. And I just by chance got a job washing dishes in a kitchen and six months later I was an apprentice chef uh, going to college one day a week and working in the kitchen. And uh, yeah, that, that became what I did. But it funded... It funded a lot of travel. It was a very easy thing to walk in and out of. So I um, I would work for the tourist season in September when they laid off their superfluous staff. Off I would go somewhere and then I would come back for Easter and be yeah, working again. Now, you've written many, many travel books. What just what was that spark for you to, to go off? That's a really good question. And I think it has ultimately something to do with, with Cornwall and West Cornwall, where I'm from. I didn't 
travel much as a child. Our holiday, our family holiday, was almost always in the Isles of Scilly, which was 30 miles west of us as, as far as you could go before America. I never came to London until I was in my mid-teens on a school trip. First time I went abroad, I was 16 and I went to Spain. So that having not travelled gave the wider world a real fascination. That first trip to Spain was just mind-blowing the the radical difference, the impression that it made on me. A little bit older than a lot of people would first travel. So there was that, that foreign places had a freshness to me which lasted for a long time. But at the same time, coming from the far west of Cornwall, this place that's almost an island, you do have a great sense of freedom. So we roamed over the whole of that, that peninsula. You know, you had friends who you all went to school with, but actually who lived maybe 20 or 30 miles apart because one lot were 15 miles one way, one lot were 15 miles the other way. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I realised that's quite unusual. If you grow up in a, a rural area elsewhere in Britain, you probably don't know people from 15 miles away mm. in each direction. You have a, a narrower sphere. So I think in a funny way that... that Almost island quality of the far west of Cornwall gave us an openness. We thought nothing about you know, heading off to walk ourselves or to cycle 10 miles to get to see a friend or to get to a party or whatever. So I think there's, there's something of that. Also, surfing. Surfing compels travel. Because and you're seeking out the best waves. You're seeking out the best waves. And in a funny way in Cornwall, I think in the 90s, the whole gap year culture wasn't the slightly posh thing it is elsewhere. I didn't realise that having been travelling was a kind of kind of middle class or upper middle class thing until I went to university and then I realised. But you know, I had friends who, who who literally grew up in council houses but who had been to Indonesia and Mexico and Australia funded with kitchen work or agricultural work because of surfing. Mm. Now, Indonesia has been a huge focus of your work. You've written a lot of books about that. Why Indonesia? Surfing again. That was what took me there in the first place. Indonesia was was the destination for for my peers surfing when I was growing up in the late 90s, early 2000s, because it was cheap at that time. It was a very cheap place to travel. You could spend a few few months working on the daffodil or the, the broccoli fields in Cornwall or working in the kitchen and have yourself a couple of months surfing in Indonesia. So I went with a friend in the first instance to go surfing. But something about the... The culture and the country ashore, not not just in the water, caught my attention. Just the the mass of stories, the the mass of different islands, each with a different characteristic and a different culture, and it just it just hooked me really more on land than in the sea. In the end, and mm. I just kept going back, and then I went to live there, and that's where I started my writing career properly. Was was while living in Indonesia. And you've written about being a travel writer, and you've written about well, I'd like to know why people call it the Great Game. Oh, the great game. Wow. So this was, that's a different area. Now we're spinning away from, from Indonesia to, to Central Asia, to the sort of borders of Pakistan and, um, and Afghanistan, Central Asia. That, and of course you've walked through there. Too. Yeah, I, I travelled when I was um, sort of in my late teens, early 20s. I spent a lot of time in that part of the world, northern Pakistan in particular. And that was actually the place where I first became really engaged with history and made this connection between place and history, between geography and history, because there's just this compelling story of the the imperial rivalry in that part of the world, which still continues today. In the 19th century, it was principally between Britain and Russia, also China to some extent as well, these three, three empires that all came very close together in that wild region um, of 
biggest mountains in the world. I mean, it's a great story. It's real kind of boy's own adventure, um, sort of people straying over borders and, and hacking their way through snow-covered passes and all of that sort of thing. So it was reading about that that, for me, linked travel, the experience, personal experience of travel, geography, place and history together as a, as a kind of wonderful, wonderful mix to read about and also to write about. Mm, because there were so many of those kind of, I guess you'd call them explorers slash travel writers. We'd know them as travel writers now. And I wonder if it isn't slightly problematic in terms of, of colonialism. I also know that you, that you have a PhD and you were looking at the, the critical creative investigation of ethical issues in, in travel literature. And I think that's something that, that we could unpack. Oh, definitely. And in a way, all of this ultimately is the, the long trajectory, the sort of 20-year trajectory that ended up with the Cornwall book. So, yeah, as a, you know, as a young backpacker in my, in my late teens, early 20s, travelling in northern Pakistan, northwest India... I was I was seduced by these stories of Victorian heroes charting new passes, finding new frontiers and identifying the highest mountains and so on. And I, I think I was not particularly sensitive to the, the ethical issues, the power imbalances. These were all white bearded men, um, mostly from considerable privilege. I would have had a kind of innate sense, I think, like most people in my generation, that colonialism was bad, but it was all in the past. But at the same time, you have this kind of seduction in the, the stories, the great stories. I think as I read more and as I read more deeply, I recognised the kind of wider problems and the wider issues. And once I studied journalism and then studied um, English literature with a sort of strong post-colonial focus, I began to understand how power relates to texts, how travellers travel typically with, with privilege. They depart from a, typically a centre of power, like where we are now, London, very often. And they go to places which often are peripheral from a conventional conventional setup. If London is the centre, then the mountains of northern Pakistan are peripheral. There's a mm. power imbalance. The, the traveller is the person with the power. And the people they travel past, the people they travel, they write about, who are sometimes called travellees by academics of this kind of thing, they don't have the power and they don't get to represent themselves. And this, in a way, ties right back to what I said at the very beginning. You know, I'm from Cornwall. I grew up with tourism all around me with books and accounts of Cornwall written by outsiders, very much aware of them. I mean, you'd see it on the television, you'd see the holiday programme and Wish You Were Here and Jill Dando coming to Cornwall. Mm. And I was kind of thrilled about that, but it also gave me a strange sense. And what I know now, uh, through my exposure to post-colonial theory, is that I was a travellee and, and they were the kind of powerful figures representing the place I was from. So that that was there in my own experience. Mm. I was unaware of it. I couldn't articulate it, but it was kind of there. So I developed an unease with that initial romance around the imperial travel writing, the imperial exploration, and then around the idea of travelling traveling and travel writing in general because there's always this sense that that somewhere there were voices that weren't being heard. And in that act of travel there was often a, an implicit power, expression of power that isn't necessarily a bad thing of itself, but does need recognising and often needs unpicking. So I wonder then for you how you felt the difference in writing about a place where you were travelling and writing about your home. Was it, was it completely different? 
it's taken me a long time to get to do it. I always used to joke. People would say to me, oh, when are you going to write about Cornwall? Because you're always going on about Cornwall. And it was the first place I ever kind of read about history. And I would always say, oh, I'm still practising. I'm writing, a, writing another history of Indonesia or whatever it is. And, and that was a, it was a joke, but there was something in it. And it was that I hadn't quite worked out how to write about Cornwall. Because that's the thing. It's actually, in a strange way, much easier to write about somewhere you're not from. Because you come in with the, the traveller's eye. With the fresh impressions, you carry a lot of baggage, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you're aware of it or not. There's all the ideas, the tropes about the place that you've picked up from film and literature and everything you know about that place, whether it's Tibet or Cornwall. But it's it's less daunting in a way. Whereas if you're trying to work out how to represent the place you're actually from, particularly if you want to do it without slipping into a kind of chippy nativism, <laughs> it's really tricky. Yeah. And it has taken me a very long time to work out how to do it about Cornwall. And the answer in the end was to engage with the people who've written about it from outside, engage with all the novelists and the travel writers who've come to Cornwall and represented it, and think about how that makes me feel as somebody from Cornwall, but also how that feeds into Cornish identities as well. And to be critical in the other direction, about the things that Cornish people tend to think about themselves or express about themselves, and see how there's, there's a relationship between the ideas, the imaginings that come from outside and the ones that come from inside. As an outsider, of course, I think of Cornwall as a, as a touristy place, as do many people who, who don't live there. But tourism has been accused of completely ruining Cornwall and also of pushing out the locals. So I think those are two quite different things that you actually just put into that question. There is 100% a very contemporary, seriously problematic thing going on in Cornwall, as there is in lots of other places, which is around housing, house prices and house availability. And that's a pretty modern phenomenon. That's to do with the demand for property in general, the mass inflation of house prices, which is a national thing, but in Cornwall it has taken on a, a particularly grotesque characteristic because Cornwall remains one of the poorest regions, not just in Britain, but in the whole of Western Europe. I mean, quite spectacularly, on, on most measures of development and poverty, Cornwall is really low. I think in Britain, only the former mining regions of South Wales rank worse than Cornwall on most of those poverty indicators. So when you have property prices that compare to the London commuter belt in a place like that, that's a problem. And the reason those house prices are so high is because of the way tourism has developed. It's moved from tourists being contained in quite discreet accommodation, caravan parks and traditional hotels and traditional B&Bs, or in some holiday cottages, but they tended to be in the area where most local people didn't want to live, the, the kind of very rural areas where there was no jobs and no transport. That's where sort of holiday cottages developed. But as we moved to a kind of Airbnb model, that changed. And you started to see places that were very much residential properties, you know, just terraced cottages in the back streets of Penzance, suddenly having a value as, as holiday accommodation. So that's a, a modern contemporary thing, and that is a problem. Uh, and something needs to be done about it. And I think the only thing I can envisage is some kind of some kind of planning element, you know, requiring change of use to to change a property to a to a, a holiday rental um, mm. and maybe restricted areas and so on. Something has to be done about that uh, because it, it it's not sustainable. But tourism itself, 
is an old thing in Cornwall. Tourism has been around in Cornwall since, well, it's hard to say when exactly, but a tourist industry of quite considerable scale has existed since Cornwall was attached to the National Rail Network in the 1850s. There have been guides and there have been guidebooks and there have been organised tours. Thomas Cook was bringing tours to Cornwall in the 1850s. My grandma and great-grandma ran a guest house in Penzance in the 1950s. Uh, When I was a child, we let out our bedrooms to to passing tourists. There were big railway hotels built in places like St Ives and Newquay and Padstow in the 1900s. So tourism is not new. Tourism has not destroyed and eaten Cornwall. There are environmental pressures caused by tourism anywhere, of course there are, and there's a particular issue with housing at the moment. But tourism itself, I'm I'm always careful to not sort of say, oh, tourism is a terrible thing, because Mm. it's not it's not inherently of itself a bad thing. Mm. And it's been around for a long time in Cornwall. And, of course, people have been crossing the ocean from Cornwall to and from Cornwall. I mean, all the, the stories of shipwrecks, of pirates, but also you, you talk about a, a very early Atlantic journey, just uh, somebody sailing from Penzance to New York. Yeah, I, I mean, the, there's, a, there's a story of emigration that's quite familiar in Cornwall. And if you've, if you've read anything around Cornwall's history, if you've been to Cornwall, you probably do pick up on the, the story of the emigrant miners. Cornwall was one of the first major emigration regions of Europe. And it was almost certainly the first post-industrial major emigration region. You have places like Ireland post-famine and southern Italy that were major sources of emigrants in the 19th century, but they were leaving rural poverty, basically post-industrial conditions. Cornish mining industry went into decline quite early from the mid-19th century and and emigration kicked off in a big way from then. So that's quite a well-known story. Cornish people went all over the world. There's supposedly around 3 million people worldwide of Cornish descent, mostly the product of mining emigration in the 19th century. But there are also these stories of people who went not for emigration, just for pleasure. And that was just a little counter, a counterintuitive little-known thing I wanted to pick up on. Um, so there's one particular story which is in the book. It was a, a farmer called James Hoskin from West Cornwall, near Penzance, near where I'm from. Well-established farmer, had a, was a tenant, but of a large, substantial holding, and just seemed to have a penchant for travel. He used to come up to London just to amuse himself, come up to Bristol just to amuse himself, and then he decided to go to America just to have a look. And the great thing is, in those days, he didn't need to come up to Heathrow Airport to to get to America. He was able to just hop on a boat that was right there in Penzance, four miles down the road from his house. It was an American boat that had come across with something to trade and was heading back with, um, I forget what it was, a tin plate, I think it was carrying. And he took a passage, a small boat. They had a very, very rough crossing in, in winter. And he was you know, he was a man in his 50s, and this is in the, in the, the early 19th century, so that's... that's quite an age at that time and off he went on this rickety ship and was several months touring around America very impressed by democracy it's sort of nascent democracy at the time he was a sort of anti-establishment figure hated paying taxes but was was a, a liberal in that kind of early that early sense believed in free trade believed mm. in in minimal government interference so he very much was impressed by that in America but he was at the same time, horrified by slavery mm. and horrified by the, the racial violence that he encountered in America. When he came back, he put together his journal as a book, but it was explicitly privately published just for his friends. It was not, not to be for public public readership. And he has a sort of preface in it which he, in which he makes it very clear, this is, this is for my friends only. 
and if it should fall into anyone else's hands, they should make no malicious comments because I am only a farmer. But he was a wonderful writer with all these kind of really fine impressions. What about people coming into Cornwall? I was recently in Falmouth and we found this little Jewish cemetery of generations, in fact, generations of relatives of my partner. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, there's there's a Jewish cemetery in, in Penzance as well. Yeah, I mean, Cornwall is a place tied into the sea. So it's a place that has obviously been linked to the rest of the world from an early stage in a way that other rural areas aren't. And one of the things I pick up on in, in the book as well is, is that, that from the 18th century and before, there were, there were black people living and marrying and having children in Cornwall. There were black Cornish children in the early 19th century. Oh, and we can find them in the parish records. They, mm. they existed. Um, there would have been people from all over the world settling, particularly around Falmouth, which at the time was you know, like one of the most important ports in Britain. So it was a multicultural place full of languages. And, but that goes back much, much earlier. You know, Cornwall was tied into a network of Atlantic exchange routes back into prehistory, you know, tied into Spain, tied into France, tied into Wales and Ireland. So it's, it's always been a, a place linked, but linked by the sea, not by the land. And Roman occupation? So growing up, I was always... I'd been exposed to this this myth, really, that Cornwall, like Scotland, like Wales, had kept the Romans out. They sort of got as far as the River Tamar and we threw pasties at them and they ran away <laughs> or something like that. And it's true, there's no Roman roads in Cornwall. The Roman infrastructure system pretty much ended at Exeter. Exeter was their last, their last garrison. But there are Roman traces in Cornwall. There's a few villas, Roman coins were there, and it was very much integrated into the Roman economic network. But it seems likely that the Romans just left it to be run by its own customary rulers. It produced tin and copper, which were hugely important in the European trade network. Mm. They traded into that Roman-dominated Europe. But they'd been doing that for thousands of years in Cornwall already, so the Romans didn't need to take it over. It was just a pragmatic decision. They, yeah, they allowed Cornwall to kind of run itself so long as the tin kept coming out, which it did. They were better at doing it than the Romans were. But that did mean that when the Romans left Britain, there wasn't the kind of disruption, the social disruption, the structural disruption that you would have had in what later became England. There was no sort of civic collapse because the customary rulers, the society kind of carried on as it was, even though the the big economic power that it had fed into had vanished. Mm. Right at the beginning we were talking about the sort of magic of Cornwall and why people think it's magical, but of course one of the, one of the big sort of magic myths is Merlin. <laughs> Merlin. Um, well, Merlin and Arthur. Yeah, I, um, I always feel this slight sense of weariness whenever the topic of <laughs> Arthurian legend comes up because it's one of the big, the big things, the big sort of mystical things that has attached to Cornwall. And it's... Something that's generated a lot of tourism, Tintagel, which is where Merlin and Arthur are sort of associated with. That's an example of a honeypot created by literary tourism. It was after Tennyson wrote The Idols of the King in the 19th century. That turned that place into a tourist destination. So it's sort of the equivalent of, of uh, the way Doc Martin has turned Port Isaac into a major destination via television. That's what happened in the 19th century. Tennyson wrote The Idols of the King and boom. Yeah, so Merlin is part of the, the Arthurian stories. They're from their kind of earliest iterations, but really, really kind of ramped up in the, in the more romantic stuff of the 19th century. So Arthur himself, 
he didn't exist. I think we can say that fairly, fairly strongly. There's no, no. <laughs> yeah, sorry. There's no trace of Arthur in the Welsh king lists, the Welsh chronicles, which is where we are able to identify the early British kings. British would be Welsh and Cornish, sort of non-Anglo-Saxon kings. Um, no trace of Arthur there. The best guess is Arthur was some kind of a folk hero, a British in terms, terms of the sort of the pre-Anglo-Saxon occupants of Britain, the people who then became the Welsh and the Cornish, sort of folk folk hero for those people, probably in the period of the Anglo-Saxon settlement where there was obviously some kind of ethnic resentment. He had these new Germanic settlers coming in and to some degree usurping or pushing back the Britons into the West. And it seems likely that Arthur was, yeah, just a, a manifestation of that. He was the person, he was the hero who would fight off the Anglo-Saxons and get rid of these pesky foreigners, these pesky sort of German-speaking foreigners coming in. And obviously the places that ended up being the, the sort of residue of British Britain were Wales and Cornwall. So that's obviously where the traces of Arthurian myth were left. But they then got picked up by the English from a very early stage and turned into this wild sort of myth. So we've had a thousand years of of utter nonsense about King <laughs> Arthur and Merlin. So it's no good looking for coming looking for King Arthur or, or Merlin in Cornwall these days. Now you're better off looking at a Disney movie if you want to find <laughs> you want to find those two. But as far as the real Cornwall goes, I mean you you are steeped in it, you were born there, but doing this walk, you must have really connected because it wasn't like you were viewing it through a train carriage. You've actually walked every step of your of your land uh, and that must have been the most extraordinary experience. Yeah, so it was a 300-mile journey. I started on the border, which is the River Tamar, which incidentally is probably the oldest quasi-national frontier in certainly in Europe and probably the world. Andorra is often said to have the, um, the, the oldest the oldest border. But the Tamar was set as a frontier between Britain and Saxon a couple of centuries before that, in the ninth century. So it's arguably the oldest quasi-national frontier in the world. So I started walking up the Tamar and then I zigzagged westwards. The reason it took 300 miles is I didn't just go in a straight line. I didn't stick to the coast. I kind of wiggled down through the middle. And what that kind of really did for me, it was sort of disaggregated Cornwall. It made me realise that you, you can't surmise Cornwall as a single place. It's too big. And it also made me question the idea of what it means to be Cornish. Because if I'm, as a person from the very far west, which is very dominated by granite, very wild, very un-English in its landscapes, exposed to the Atlantic... If I'm to look at a landscape somewhere around the, the far east of Cornwall, somewhere around Launceston, around the Tamar Valley, or somewhere in the south around Foy and Lou, which are very soft, very pastoral, the coast there is very gentle. If I'm to look at that and feel some kind of connection, where does that come from? It can only come from ideology. It can only come from an ideological affiliation to this piece of territory. So I look at places that look nothing like where I'm from and say, ah, yes, that rises something in my heart. That can only be because I see it as Cornwall. And it's the same thing as looking at the White Cliffs of Dover when you come from, I don't know, Blackburn or something mm. and say, ah, you're, there we go, England. That's not because you have some natural sense of place there. It's not because they are personally familiar to you. It's a thing of ideology. And that's what I realised. So when I see bits of Cornish iconography that are not from the bit of Cornwall that I'm from and I feel that surge of Cornish pride, that's, yeah, that's an ideological thing. It's a nationalist thing and it's maybe something I'm slightly more uncomfortable with now. So walking through it, realising how different it was, how varied it was, how radically it changes in small small distances, 
for me, kind of broke Cornwall apart, disaggregated it, and real, made me realise that my true affiliation is just with my bit, the very far west, Penwith. And I don't think anyone can really have a true embedded affiliation with an area bigger than maybe 100 square miles. And Cornwall's, Cornwall's too big for any one person to have a genuine non-ideological affiliation with. But it is absolutely a place we should explore. And with your book in our hands, I think, I think it's really important to have an understanding of that history of the great wealth of ideas, of, of the wonderful uh, landscape that you so beautifully describe in this book, Tim. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. The Granite Kingdom is by Tim Hannigan. It's published by Head of Zeus and it's out now. <laughs> You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Monica Lillis. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Listener.